Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, good evening. Um, this is a very sizable pulpit, and it's nice. Uh, I can have my notes with me. I have a book up here as well, so this is good. Uh, well, tonight I'll be preaching from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And when I've been teaching a lot lately, I've been trying to teach from Ephesians because, Lord willing, that's the book that I'll preach through in India. Um, and most of my sermons have come from the first three chapters, uh, which if you've read the book of Ephesians, uh, you'll know that the first three chapters are these beautiful doctrinal statements of the Christian faith. And uh, chapters 4 through 6 are really chapters about the outworkings of this particular doctrine that the Apostle Paul beautifully lays out. And so we find ourselves tonight in chapter 4, which is the first of three chapters on how Christians should live in response to the gospel and how Christians should live in response to uh, this beautiful doctrine that Paul beautifully uh, expresses here in the book of Ephesians. Um, you know, Ephesians has been called, uh, you know, the, the noblest composition of man. And, uh, people have said that it is, you know, the, the most wonderful book ever written because in the book of Ephesians you have so much theology and doctrine uh, distilled into such a small space. And so here, um, you know, even in the chapters that we're going to, uh, the verse that we're going to look at tonight on uh, how Christians should live on these exhortations, there's still doctrine involved in that as well. And that's very important. We'll look at that. But uh, we're not moving from uh, doctrine just to exhortation. Even here in the exhortations, there's doctrine. Doctrine undergirds it. Doctrine is essential for what is um, the apostle will be speaking to us tonight. Uh, so I'll read the, the verses and then pray again, and then we can work back through it. This is the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and I'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body. In one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these beautiful words. We praise you for saving us. We praise you for giving your Son. You have made us alive with him. And we pray that uh, we would uh, be faithful to your word tonight, that only what is true would remain and that what is false would fall away. And we pray that you would be glorified here in all that we do. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I mentioned before, commentators generally divide the book of Ephesians into half. They say that the first three uh, chapters is about doctrine, and the last three chapters is about, uh, you know, instruction or exhortation in the Christian life, how Christians should live in response to doctrine. 
And we see this, um, this connection here. The, the Apostle Paul uses the word therefore. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying that in light of everything that I have said in the previous three chapters, um, therefore, you should respond in this way. It's a, it's a conjunction. It's, he's wanting to grab their attention and to say, okay, follow me. I want you to think about what I've said. I want you to think about what I've said. And he says, therefore, therefore. And so, of course, it refers to the, the first three chapters in, in, uh, in generally. But in particular, I think it refers to the last two verses of chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul um, has this, uh, this uh, uh, benediction or this doxology here at the end of this prayer. And the Apostle Paul says, Now to him, or to God the Father, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So notice how the Apostle Paul uh, is here in those two verses speaking of the glory of God in the church. And he's talking about the glory of God that will resound throughout all of eternity. And then here in verse 1 of chapter 4, he moves from, from uh, the glory of God to how Christians should walk. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And this is a natural uh, consequence of the glory of God. God's glory, God is glorified in our obedience. So our holiness brings glory to God. And this is not something that the Apostle Paul has done uh, that is unique in Scripture. We find the Lord Jesus also speaking about how God is glorified through our obedience. Uh, and so, for example, in Matthew five sixteen, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Or in John fifteen eight, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And even earlier in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 10, the Apostle Paul talks about how God has created Christians for good works. We are his workmanship. And so he made us so that we might live obedient lives. And so notice how Paul draws from God's glory to our obedience. And it is a natural transition. And it is, is a theme that you would see throughout Scripture that God is glorified through our obedience. Notice, too, what Paul says. He says that he is a prisoner for the Lord. And not and Paul, by saying that he's a prisoner, is using this in one sense to uh, give credence or credibility to his authority to exhort Christians to live obedient lives. Paul is saying, I have counted the cost, and I am even in chains, and I am suffering because of the gospel. And so I am not like the Pharisees and commanding you to do these things and not practicing them myself. I am practicing them even to the hurt of my own flesh. I am in chains. But he's not so much saying that using uh, this, his, this phrase, a prisoner for the Lord, to, to uh, give credibility to what he's saying. He's also glorying in his chains. So in Acts chapter 5, you find the early uh, early church uh, after uh, Peter and John and James, after they had been beaten in front of the Jerusalem, uh, in front of the council at the San Sanhedrin, they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. And so Paul here is even glorying in the fact that he is a prisoner for the Lord. And so 
Uh, notice also, too, that he says he's a prisoner for the Lord. Or in the Greek, it's like literally he's a prisoner in the Lord. And so uh, this is important. He's not like in prison you know, by the Lord, but he's suffering in Christ. And we see God's sovereignty over our suffering, even over our imprisonment, even our unjust uh, treatment that we receive at the hands of others for the sake of the gospel. Uh, we are, even God is sovereign over that. And notice, too, this beautiful, high uh, name for Jesus, Lord. The name Lord is a, a, a word that appears frequently in the Old Testament to refer to Yahweh, to God the Father. But in the New Testament, these authors picked up the expression to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, showing his divinity, showing that he is worthy of all of our worship. And so in the Old Testament, you see that it refers to Yahweh. In the New Testament, we see that it refers to Christ. And so he's a prisoner for the Lord. And it's a beautiful thing to suffer for him who suffered for us. To be imprisoned for him who suffered at the hands of sinful man. And like Paul, we should glory in that. And notice too that the word Lord has connotations of authority. That Jesus has authority over our lives. He has authority over what we do or what we say or what we think. He The Apostle Paul, in another letter in 1 Corinthians, commands Christians to whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, to do all to the glory of the Lord. And so Jesus possesses authority over our lives, not only because he created us and sustains us by his power, but Jesus also has authority over our lives because he purchased us with his blood. And so he is Lord over our lives for two reasons— one, because he created us, and one, because, or two, because he redeemed us. Consider what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. He says that we were purchased with the, the blood of Christ, and so that we should glorify God in our body. Or in 1 Peter 1, 18, the Apostle Peter speaks about how we were ransomed with precious things, not with, uh, with the precious blood of Christ, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. And so Scripture uses the language of the market to describe the nature of our salvation. Like Jesus has actually purchased us, and as, 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 uh, uh, as possessions of Christ, that is another way that Christ has uh, the, a determination of what we do. We're his possessions. We're his slaves. And, uh, and so the financial language that the Scripture uses to describe our relationship with Christ is important in that sense. Also, too, the Apostle Paul urges Christians to obey. He doesn't simply recommend that Christians should obey or suggest that this might be profitable for you or might work out well that you obey, Uh, but he urges Christians. He urges them to obey. He's pleading with us to obey, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, because it is a glorious calling to which we have been called. And so now I want to turn your attention to what uh, this next expression in verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You know, to walk is an expression that you find throughout Scripture, and the Apostle Paul uses it six times in the book of Ephesians alone. And so to walk is really um, an expression that means, uh, like, how you live your life. It's, it, you know, it's essentially, like, what do you do on a regular basis? Or do you, do you characteristically uh, follow God, or do you characteristically live for yourself and live for sin? That's what is meant by the term walk. And so we see that we're urged to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And notice here that you know, we have a particular calling that we have on our lives. It, you know, it's not a calling to do great things. It's not a calling to make much of ourselves or to make a lot of money or to be uh, important in this world. 
But it's a, it's a heavenly calling. It's a calling uh, out from, uh, from darkness into God's marvelous light. That's the calling that God has put on our lives. And, and so we see in Ephesians that God uh, has a calling for us. And we can learn a couple things about our calling. You know, there's several characteristics. If, when we look at this verse, we see that the first, that we have a particular calling. He says uh, the calling to which you have been called. Christians have been predestined by God for salvation. They have a particular calling. There's a, a general gospel call that goes out from maybe a pulpit or maybe through evangelism or a book or a tract. There is a, a general call. But then there's also a particular call to God's elect. And, it, and this is uh, the second point is related to the first, and that there's also an effectual call. There's an effectual, uh, callings are, is particular, and it's also effectual. So in Romans 8.30, the Apostle Paul, in this golden chain of salvation, says that those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so, in other words, if God has predestined you for salvation, you will infallibly be glorified at the end. It is an effectual call. God's call is not a provisional call. It is an effectual call that achieves what he purposes. And if God purposes to save someone, he will infallibly be saved. Despite all opposition from the world, from Satan, from our flesh, we will be saved. Third, it is also a hope-filled call. Uh, in Ephesians 1.18, the Apostle Paul prays. He says that he prays uh, in 118, he says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. Also, in uh, verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul also speaks of, of this hope. He says, The one hope that belongs to your call. So there's a, a, the, call, the, the calling of Christians is also a hope-filled call. We look forward to that day when we will be free from our flesh and that we will become the inheritance of, 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 of God. Not that God is our inheritance. That's not what the, uh, the verse says. That, but actually that we are God's inheritance. That God would choose sinful man, people who had rebelled against him and would make these, these people, would make people like us his treasured possession. This is an expression that uh, Moses uses to describe uh, the people of Israel in Exodus 19, and you see it throughout the Old, the Old Testament, and, it, uh, and it's picked up also in the New Testament well, this idea of treasured possession, that there's a unique covenantal relationship with God and his people. And this also belongs to our call. But there are other characteristics of our call as well. It is also a holy calling. So in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 9, we see this aspect of our calling. In 2 Timothy 1.9, the apostle says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So God has given us a holy calling as well. Uh, it's a calling to deny ourselves, to put to death our flesh, and to put on Christ Jesus to pursue the works of righteousness. It's also a heavenly calling. So in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 1, uh, the writer of Hebrews says to this church, he says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, 
And so it's also a heavenly calling. In other words, that we're being, uh, we're, we're called out of this wilderness into this heavenly land. We're called out of this wilderness into Canaan. And not a Canaan that's on earth, which can never satisfy, but a heavenly Canaan where uh, there is true milk and honey, which nourishes our souls. Um, and then also, it is an irrevocable calling. In Romans eleven twenty nine, the Apostle Paul says that uh, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, that God doesn't give and then say, oh, well, can I, I need that back. But you know, he gives, and you are allowed to keep it. You're allowed to keep, keep the gifts that God gives. God doesn't shift with his purposes. He remains steadfast. And that is a beautiful characteristic of our God, that he is trustworthy and faithful. Okay, now we will move to Ephesians 4.2. Um, so uh, the apostle here in verse 2 is beginning to clarify how Christians should walk. Um, he, he says that you should walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so, okay, so we understand that we should walk worthily. But what does it mean to walk worthily? And so the apostle Paul is going to help us with that here, with, um, with that. And the first thing is that we should walk with humility or all humility, and then gentleness and patience, and we should bear with one another in love. Uh, and so uh, we see that Paul urges his readers to a life that's similar to the life of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Jesus uh, was um, the most humble man who ever lived, even though that he was God in the flesh. He was the most humble man who ever lived. And as Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. We also are called to a life of humility. A servant seeks to obey his master. A soldier seeks to follow the orders of his superior. And so, but, but before we begin get into like what this actually means, implicit in these verses is that Christians spend time together. You, you know, Paul is writing to a church, and it's really easy to be humble if you're by yourself all the time and you're not around other Christians. Or if you're not around other people, it's really easy to be gentle if you have nobody who's provoking you to frustration. You know, you know if you're just alone, you know, you know, in isolation as, you know, a monk, you know, you're, you're there by yourself. And maybe you can get mad at yourself, but it's, you know, but, you know, Paul is, is assuming that Christians will spend time with each other. You know, the, the book of Ephesians wasn't written to a man named Ephesus. It was written to a church at Ephesus. And so, you know, it's important for us to understand that this implied underneath all these commands is that the idea that Christians will spend time with each other. And so that means that you should prioritize the local church. You should prioritize your relationships with people in the church. You should prioritize community group and and being with the body of Christ. Because without the body of Christ, you really can't obey these commandments. Of course, you should show these characteristics to unbelievers and all those whom you interact with. But these commandments in particular are focused on the Christian's relationship with other Christians. And so now let's look at the first um, set, uh, humility and gentleness. So humility and gentleness are attitudes that are repulsive to our natural you know, character. You know, naturally, I'm a very prideful person. I, I seek to exalt myself and, and I you know, want to you know, glorify myself. But, you know, when I, come, when I came to Christ, I had to give, away, give up this self-exaltation. I had to confess my sins to God. I had to admit that I had messed up, that I had chosen to follow my own wisdom, but in my own wisdom, I had chosen 
a wrong path. And every Christian has some seed of humility in him because to come to Christ, you must strip away your pride and confess your need for him. And to confess your need is an expression and a recognition of, your, of humility. And so humility and gentleness are foundational uh, characteristics of the Christian life. They are, are elementary. These are the elementary doctrines of Christ. When you come to Christ, you must show humility. But not only is it foundational, it's also an evidence of fruit in of the Holy Spirit's alive, a work in you. And it's also a sign of fruitfulness. That to show humility requires the Holy Spirit's work in you. And so by fruit, essentially what I mean is like manifestations of the Holy Spirit's work in you. And so I get this expression from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 where he speaks of the, the, the fruits of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. These are what the Apostle Paul says are, are fruits uh, of, of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, in his commentary on uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, uh, Peter O'Brien, who is uh, this Australian uh, uh, author, he says that humility or lowliness, as is well known, occurred in Greek literature generally only on a few occasions, and then usually in the derogatory sense of servility, weakness, or shameful lowliness. And so, you know, in the culture like that Paul's writing to at Ephesus, humility is not something that, you know, would be looked upon highly. They wouldn't praise you for being humble. Like, whereas here, like, if you kind of have like a, a, a false humility, people are like, oh, brother, you're, you're humble. You know, that's a, a great characteristic. Or, you know, we try, we, we want to have this appearance of humility here. Where we, so humility, we kind of view as a good thing, even though our flesh opposes it. We still hold it up as a virtue. Whereas in, among the, the Greeks, they didn't have a hold the humility up for a virtue. You know, they had like a more like, um, you know, machismo, like, you know, masculinity, like where they're, you know, you wanted to, you know, be a warrior. And so they would, you know, read uh, Homer's uh, Odyssey and the Iliad, and they would kind of look at these, these Greek warriors and hold them up to, to kind of emulate them. But, and so just think how, 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 um, how this would have cut against the grain um, of, of these, the ideals that was held up among the Greeks, that you should pursue, pursue humility. And, not, and, and, and the thing is that Christians, we worship a humble God. We worship a God who became man and served others. But not only that, but we worship a, a God in Trinity— and the Holy Spirit, who is fully God, fully uh, endowed with all the attributes of God, co-equal, co-eternal, he, he uh, brings, he, he, his, his ambition is to glorify Jesus. And Jesus' ambition is to glorify the Father. And so you see, even among members of the Trinity, there is this uh, inter-Trinitarian um, uh, pursuit of humility. And so to be a Christian is to pursue humility as well. So even though we're called to this humility, um, you know, and even though the Greeks had a distaste for it, we can easily see in our own flesh how, um, how prone we are to, to be prideful. And we see that humility and gentleness are found chiefly in Christ. So in 2 Corinthians 8 9, we see that Christ made himself poor. He created the world, and, and before he came to earth, he was the object of heavenly praise. And so in the Gospel of John, it says that John... John um, was speaking of Isaiah in uh, this beautiful uh, picture in Isaiah 6 where uh, you, in the throne room of heaven and the, the cherubim or seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. The apostle John says that Isaiah there is referring to Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. <clears throat> so Christ 
was the object of eternal praise. And we see in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 5, that it, in eternity, that we will be praising the Lamb who was slain for our sins. And so this Jesus, who was uh, exalted from eternity past and will be exalted in eternity future, this Jesus gave up his rights and was uh, content to be humble. And if our Lord Jesus can live a life of humility, how much more should we? Not only are we obligated to do this because we are servants of the Lord Jesus and Christians by name, but look at our very nature. We are creatures and not the Creator. We are sinful people who have received only uh, good things from God. Everything that we have from God is a gift. Uh, it is um, the, the result of God's grace to us. We deserve nothing except God's condemnation. And even though we deserve that God bestows his blessings on us abundantly. Uh, Christ was approachable by women and children and lepers. In short, all people. And, what this, and, and the reason this is remarkable is because in that culture, to be approached by a woman or children or lepers was unacceptable. Women were not regarded as equals. Children were considered nuisances. Uh, and lepers were, were, set, were, were separated from, from society based off the Levitical laws. But Jesus, our Lord, was gentle and approachable by these people who were on the margins of society. During his childhood, Jesus submitted to his family. And even though Jesus created them and upheld their lives, he submitted to them. Can you imagine the young Lord Jesus as maybe a 10 or 11-year-old boy recognizing that he had created his parents, but even though he had this recognition, he still submitted to them and obeyed them. Notice, too, that he submitted to the will of his Father, choosing even to die the the shameful death on a cross, rather than to disobey him. In the garden of Gethsemane, he cried out, not my will, but yours be done. And also Christ himself, by his own admission in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 29 urges people to come and learn from him because he is gentle and lowly of heart. And that is the God whom we serve, a humble God. And I have a quote here from Hugh Benning, who was uh, a Scottish uh, you know, Puritan. And this is from his book, Christian Love. It's in the Puritan paperback series. And so he quotes here Jesus. He says, The servant is not above his Lord, and the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And here's what he says in response to these verses. Oh, whose spirit would not that compose? What apprehension of wrong would it not compensate? What flame of contention about worth and respect would it not quench? What noise of tumultuous passions would it not silence? Therefore, the apostle of the Gentiles prescribes this medicine, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death of the cross. If he did humble himself out of charity, who is so high, how should we humble ourselves both out of charity and necessity who are so low? If we knew ourselves, it would be no strange, uh, it would be no strange that we were humble. The evidence of truth would exhort it from us. But here is the wonder. 
but that he who knew himself to be equal to God should notwithstanding become lower than men, that the Lord of all should become the servant of all, and the King of glory make himself of no reputation, that he pleased to come down to lowest who knew himself to be the highest of all. No necessity could persuade it, but charity and love has done it. Now then, how monstrous and ugly a thing must pride be after this. And we see, like, as we reflect on the life of the Lord Jesus and his character, we see how terrible a sin of pride is, you know, and we see how we are urged to pursue humility and gentleness. And so in Ephesians 4, 3, Paul speaks here of eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And so this eagerness is a disposition of conciliation that should be manifest in the lives of Christians. This is the key point of this passage. In other words, that we're supposed to walk worthy of our calling, but the way we walk worthy of the calling and what the Apostle Paul is getting at in these six verses is that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we should be eager to do it, not begrudgingly seek unity, like, well, yeah, you sinned against me, and I suppose I'll forgive you. Um, but no, like, we should forgive liberally and generously because that is how God has forgiven us. And so later on in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 32, the Apostle Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And God in Christ did not forgive us begrudgingly or half-heartedly or, you know, resistantly or reluctantly, but he forgave us freely and joyfully. And we, we know in, from Jeremiah 9 that God delights to show steadfast love. And then even in uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, this great manifestation of the glory of God to Moses, he, 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 the Lord, he says that the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And those are the first things that God reveals to Moses. When God reveals himself to Moses, he didn't necessarily uh, talk about how he created the world, even though he did, or he didn't speak of any other thing, but he spoke at length about his love and his disposition to forgive. And that's uh, the God that we serve. And we should emulate our God, as it says in Ephesians 5.1, to be imitators as uh, obedient children, to be imitators of God as obedient children, we should uh, forgive and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Notice how God has reconciled us to him. We were separated from God, but he reconciled us to him. And then in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul talks about how God has reconciled Jews and Gentiles together. These two groups who were formerly at odds, uh, the Jews looking down on the Gentiles because they were ceremonially unclean, and the Gentiles looking down on the Jews because they were um, worshiping, uh, uh, you, know, you know, a God who they considered to be a tribal deity. Uh, and so but, uh, God has taken these two groups who were at odds with one another and brought them together and unified them in one body. And so God this is a God who seeks reconciliation. And if we are God's children, we should likewise seek reconciliation. Um, so we should eagerly and joyfully seek to uh, maintain the unity of the Spirit. And so there are many reasons why we should do that. Number one, Christians are members of the same body, the same spiritual body, that the mystical body of Christ. Christians are also uh, um, uh, a part of the same spiritual house. Christians are citizens of the same city. They are sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters of Christ. So we have a unique relationship with Christians that should promote, that should uh, provoke us to maintain the unity of Christ. Uh, so eagerness in this activity glorifies 
God. So as God loves a cheerful giver, he also loves a cheerful peacemaker. Um, uh, and so, and also recall that Christ calls peacemakers blessed in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And so if Christ uh, calls those who seek peace blessed, we should uh, seek peace. And, and not only should we seek peace, but peacemakers in, like the, in, the, in the context of uh, the Beatitudes, those are characteristics of those who are truly Christians. So you should ask yourself, do you seek peace? Specifically, do you speak, seek peace with other Christians, but do you also seek peace with others? And so there are at least three motivations to eagerly pursue peace. Number one is that Christ calls peacemakers blessed. The second is that we stand in a unique relationship with other Christians. And third is that God made peace with us when we were alienated with him. So if anyone had a legitimate grievance with the other, it was certainly God. It says in Ecclesiastes 7.29 that God made man upright, but he has sought out many schemes. And we have sought out many schemes to disobey God. And notice too, finally, that this unity is of the Spirit. And basically what this means is that the Spirit is the one who causes uh, this unity to come about. He is the, 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 the source of this unity. And this uh, is, 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 is um, important for us to, re- to recognize. We're not called to uh, create unity in the body of Christ. We're only called to maintain it. See what the Apostle Paul says, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We're supposed to maintain what the Spirit has already created, what the Spirit has already done. We're not uh, called to create anything, but simply to maintain it. So in Ephesians 4.4, 4, uh, the Apostle Paul now speaks of other motivations for Christian obedience. And here you'll notice that the word one appears uh, throughout uh, these next several verses. So it says there is one body, and one spirit, uh, just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So one body, what this uh, uh, refers to uh, is the spiritual body of Christ. Uh, but before I go any further, I'm sorry. Like This is uh, the second part of this passage. So in uh, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, uh, um, the Apostle Paul, uh, uh, this can, these six verses can even be divided into two parts. The first uh, three verses essentially are how Christians should live a life worthy of the calling to which they've been called. And the last three verses are why Christians should live a life worthy of the life they've been, uh, worthy of the calling to which they've been called. And so, uh, and so, so this is like beginning this new, uh, this new part of this larger passage. And so the Apostle Paul is given even more reasons why Christians should do that. And, and notice too that the Apostle Paul gives reasons for Christian behavior. That, um, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones is this uh, 20th century pastor in, in Great Britain, and he, he speaks of the importance of the motivations for our behavior. It's not enough merely to, to seek peace because people in other religions seek peace as well. Uh, there are peaceful Sikhs or you know, peaceful Hindus or peaceful Buddhists, but uh, why do they seek peace? You see, why? we seek peace because we have been reconciled to God. Like our God has sought peace with us, and in response to the peace that we have with God, we also seek peace with others. But we also have a lot more reasons to seek peace, too, as we'll see in these verses. So what a one body refers to is the one mystical or spiritual body of Christ. And so I get this from Ephesians 2.16. And so... Uh, Christ might reconcile us both to God, uh, that that is, both is like uh, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So this one body is this one mystical body of Christ. One spirit. 
refers to the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 2.18, the apostle says, For through him, through Jesus, we both have access, Jews and Gentiles both have access, in one spirit to the Father. So there's one Holy Spirit that we receive. And then we have one hope. In Ephesians 1.18, I've mentioned this verse earlier, uh, the apostle prays that we might know our hope, the hope um, uh, and to the hope which he has called us, what are the riches of uh, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then even in Romans 8.24, which we studied this past week, um, Paul mentions that, and we were saved in this hope, which is like the redemption of our bodies. So there's a, a, a particular hope that Christians have, and it is, is one hope. It's this hope of um, being freed from this body of death and being um, in the presence of God forever and ever. It's the promises that we find in, in Revelation 21 and 22, where we see that Christians will be free from sin, will be free from sickness, and will have uh, the experience of being in the presence of God forever, able to worship Him uh, 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 fully, which we are made to do but are unable to do in this flesh. Now in in verse 5, the Apostle Paul continues, uh, One Lord, this refers to Christ. One faith, and this refers to uh, the truths uh, that Christians all affirm. And so later on in Ephesians 4 and verse 13, Paul says, talks about how one day Christians will all reach the unity of the faith. And then even in Jude 3, uh, Jude mentions that the faith handed down once for, for, once for all. So there is a, 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 what, essentially what this means, uh, means is faith is this idea of certain doctrinal beliefs. So Christians must, you, there are certain things that you must affirm to be a Christian. You must affirm the deity of Christ. You must affirm the sinfulness of man. You must affirm the Trinity. You must affirm a substitutionary atonement. You must affirm the resurrection from the dead. Um, and these are certain basic tenets of Christianity that you must affirm to be saved. There is one baptism. Now, this doesn't refer to the mode or the way of baptisms. Or in other words, it doesn't mean that there's only a, partic- a particular way to baptism, uh, uh, baptize someone. So, if you're Presbyterian and you sprinkle uh, sprinkle the water, unfortunately, that's an illegitimate baptism. That's not what the Paul is saying here, uh, that you have to be fully immersed in water. Uh, for your baptism to be legitimate. But what he is saying, um, I think uh, Paul uh, helps us understand what he means by this in Galatians three twenty-seven through 28. He says, For as many of you uh, as you uh, were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So in other words, all those who were baptized into Christ have put him on. And so what that means, is not necessarily the physical baptism per se. It's the, the spiritual reality of what the baptism um, uh, uh, symbolizes. And so um, in Colossians uh, 2, uh, Paul speaks of this baptism and sort of this, the spiritual realities of it. So the apostle in Colossians 2 says that um, uh, we were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there's this union that we have with Christ that is symbolized in baptism. And then finally, here in verse 6 of Ephesians 4, this is a controversial verse. Um, <laughs> there's two competing interpretations of this verse. Um, and specifically, the contention is over uh, this particular part in verse 6. Um, it says, one God and Father of all. So the question is, who, who are the all, or what's the all? So in Greek, the expression panton uh, can be either a masculine or neuter. They're, they look exactly the same. And so the question is, is this masculine or is this neuter? And so now we have to use our context. 
kind of ascertain like what, what the apostle means by this. And we'll also look at like what the apostle has, has, has used these expressions earlier uh, in his other writings. And so there's two, two arguments. I'll do the, uh, the argument that I disagree with first. And this is the argument that it refers to all things. And this is uh, kind of like Peter O'Brien has summarized this really well. And so I was kind of have his, his summarization of this argument. Number one is that, that it, the people who refer, say that this refers to all things is that uh, the sovereignty of God over all things is in view in Ephesians. So we see this in Ephesians 3 with this prayer of, of Paul. And we also see it in Ephesians 1 uh, how God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And there's other instances as well. But for the sake of time, that, that should suffice. Um, and number two is that Paul uses these prepositions in other places in Scripture, or when he uses it, it has a cosmic scope. So, for example, in Romans eleven thirty six, where where the apostle says, "For from him and through him and to him are all things; to him be the glory forever and ever." Amen. When he says that, it doesn't necessarily have um, its significance on the church uh, uh, only, but it has a cosmic significance that God is uh, uh, all things come from God, and that God works through all things, and that all things are attend to his glory. So it has a cosmic scope uh, um, other times when Paul uses these prepositions uh, uh, over and through and in. But I think it refers to the church for these reasons. In the context of this passage, Paul has been speaking of the church, specifically what the church has in common or the things that should motivate the church to uh, have unity within its members. And so look how the church has one body and one spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism, and one Lord. Those are things that are unique to the church. The world and the church don't share these things in common. And even though God created all things, God is in relationship to a fa- uh, as Father only to those who have repented of their sins and are trusting in Christ. Two, uh, God is referred to as Father of Christ and his, and his people. So, for example, in Ephesians 1.3, the apostle says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Finally, some manuscripts, and we don't see this in this verse right here, but some manuscripts include in us all or in you all. So there, are, there is some textual uh, 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 credibility to this interpretation. And so, so I think from the basis of the context of this passage, which is speaking specifically of the church, two, that God is typically referred to as Father of, of Christ and his people, and three, some of this textual, uh, uh, other manuscripts, I think it's best to understand that this passage, when he's talking about overall, refers to the church. Now, this is not to say that God is not sovereign over all things, but that in this passage, God is speaking, speci- or Paul is speaking specifically of the church. I'll end with this quote by Peter O'Brien, have a little bit of application, and then we can end our evening. So here's Peter O'Brien here commenting on this verse. He says, His universal rule is being exercised to fulfill his ultimate purpose of unifying all things in Christ. The unity of the church is the means by which the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed to the universe. Recall uh, chapter 3, verse 10, where the apostle says this. The church is the eschatological, or in other words, like the church is like, you know, the, 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 the expression of like the, the end times, like, the, you know, what Christ has accomplished, the eschatological outposts, the pilot project of God's purposes. And his people are the expression of this unity that displays to the universe his final goal. So as the world and the cosmic powers look at the church and they see the unity that is manifested in the church as we deny ourselves and as we put on humility or clothe ourselves with the humility, as the Apostle Peter says in First uh, Peter 5, 5, as we do that, um, uh, God is glorified, and the, the world sees what it means to follow Christ. 
So my exhortations to you are, number one, pursue humility. Two, pursue gentleness. Three, pursue patience. Four, pursue uh, 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 the ability to bear with one another. And five, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So you can see that my application came straight from the text, and it's not something I devised on my own. <laughs> so, um, and so it's just best to take God at his word and pray for grace to obey it. Uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless this. Uh, Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word is so precious. It is life-giving. It is able to give us an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It is able to make us wise for salvation. Give us grace to obey. Give us grace to believe in Christ and to trust him and to treasure him above all things. Thank you so much for this church, and I pray that our church would be characterized by unity and that we would walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We praise you, and we ask that you would be glorified tonight. Amen.